the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. So check them out at LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Coming up, I love a success story. I love a success story built on hard work, focus, risk-taking, dedication, self-belief. You're going to meet a guy you've probably never heard of. I hadn't until I sort of discovered him through a post that he put out on LinkedIn. And I was so intrigued by his story because where he started is 180 degrees from where he is now. And the steps that he took are fascinating. And these are the kinds of stories that can motivate and encourage even those of you who are still on your trek and and need a little motivation each day, or those of you who are feeling a little lost. This guy, his life has been remarkable. And you're going to meet him and you're going to say, how come I hadn't heard of this guy before? Well, you're going to hear from him now. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. So as promised, I want to introduce you to Bernard Tony and tell you his amazing story. But I'm going to let him tell it. I'm just going to sort of bring it along. Bernard, I I, I say the word discovered because, but I, I mean, I was introduced to you on LinkedIn. You posted something that said, don't tell me that people can't change. And it's a photo of you from, I think, how old were you in this photo where you look like you've lost a tooth or you have gold <laughs> teeth or something? I was 17 years old. 17 years old, and you look like you want trouble. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and cut to now, and then the pr- present day picture is you standing next to, I believe that's Air Force One, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, working at, at the White House Medical Unit. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so let's start at 17. What was your life like? Where were you born, and how did you grow up? Yeah, so uh, I was born originally in Detroit, Michigan, uh, and then my family moved down to Atlanta, Georgia when I was about three years of age. Um, and I would say that I had a normal upbringing with the exception of I came from a, a lower socioeconomic background um, in the school systems and the environment that I was in was was not ideal for, I would say, any, any kid. Um, and so uh, I had struggles along the way, I would imagine, just like most people. But then I had, you know, some pretty significant life changing events. Um, at the age of 14 and, and 17 before I joined the Army. What happened at 14? Uh, at 14 uh, was the first time I ever had a, a gun placed in my head. And so I was at a bus stop. Um, I was leaving a barbershop in uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia, and I was robbed at gunpoint. 
by by three guys. They took everything I had. It didn't have much at the age of 14, but they took what they can find. I think they took a pager, whatever cash I had. Um, I think I had like a gold chain or something like that. And uh, I was robbed and my mom called the police and there was really nothing that the police can do at the time. Um, but then that's when I realized that, you know, we were kind of living in some very unsafe conditions. I can't even imagine. So my daughter's going to be 14 soon. And to, to picture her alone at a bus stop being robbed at gunpoint and trying to imagine the fear, what do you recall about what you were, what you were fear, you know, feeling inside as this gun was at your head? Well, I kind of anticipated it. You know, there was a couple of guys that didn't look uh, like they look kind of nefarious characters, if you will. And they were kind of walking up to me um, and they, they were standing pretty close behind me. Um, and so um, I knew something wasn't right. I mean, just spider senses kind of tingle. And uh, and they put, you know, one grabbed me by the neck another put the gun to my head and um, and they took whatever they had. And so um, at that point, I think I called my, my mother as, as always. Uh, and, uh, and, and she, and she tried to do what she could, but the police basically said, listen, um, unless he can identify the suspects, there's not a whole lot we can do. And so they were never apprehended. No, no. So at this point, you're 14, you're looking at a future, you know, that you're in a dangerous place, at least not a super safe place. Mm -hmm. And then you said the next significant, significant thing happened when you were 17. What was that life changing experience? Probably the most significant life-changing event. Um, I was 17. Uh, I had just graduated high school. Um, I didn't matriculate through uh, my normal high school. I should have graduated from Redan High School, but I ended up going to Open Campus, which was an alternative school. Again, not out, not ideal conditions. Um, and we were celebrating my friend Ivan Gray's uh, soon-to-be graduation from high school. Um, we went to a club. And after the club, we went to a gas station and we were uh, filling our uh, tanks with gas. And uh, we were we were in a drive by shooting. Um, I was in the car in the driver's seat. Uh, my car took uh, several rounds. Uh, there were bullets in the hood of the car, um, door of the car. And my friend who was on the passenger side um, was shot in the chest. Um, and so uh, that one that one round to the chest uh, is what took his life. Um, I just remember, if, you know, essentially trying to do everything I can to keep him alive. I had, you know, friends around me saying, um, you know, don't let him go to sleep. <laughs> you know, at the time I didn't know what that meant, but uh, but uh, he, he succumbed to his wounds and, and he died uh, before making it to the hospital. Okay. And you're 17, which is I'm my 17. son's age. So this is, again, this, I'm just, I'm trying to put this into context for people. <laughs> like it, imagine a 17 year old that you know and right. love in that situation. Um. So how did you react to all this? I mean, you've already been held at gunpoint yourself three mm -hmm. years prior, mm -hmm. and now you're seeing what a gun does to a friend, takes mm -hmm. his life, mm -hmm. and you're sitting right there. Right. What, what, what do you do in response? How do you, how do you deal with all of this? You know, when I, when I look back, it was just like anything else. I think it's almost a fight or flight response. You don't really know what's happening. You just know that you have to react in some sort of way. So uh, part of that story was I, I did get out of the danger zone, if you will. I drove maybe three blocks down the road and, and I was able to pull him out of the car. Um, but trying to communicate with EMS dispatchers was, you know, very difficult. Uh, I don't know how long it took for someone to actually get there, but it took quite a while. Um, and so... I just remember feeling helpless, and that's sort of what propelled me into wanting to uh, to go into some form of medicine um, at some point in my career because of that helpless feeling, and I never wanted to feel that way. Um, so, uh, you know, ironically, I had already 
signed a contract to join the army the December prior. So I was still 17. So I was committed to going into the military already at that point. Um, but that was in late March of 1999, dating myself here. Uh, in April 19th of 1999, I was in, in basic training in boot camp. So Bernard, you, you said before this incident, you had committed to joining the army. What, what mm -hmm. led you to that decision? Uh, zero options. I had a very low GPA. I hadn't done anything to prepare for college. I hadn't taken an SAT. I, I didn't have any real job prospects lined up. I had no idea what I could do with my life. Um, and I, I had this sort of pattern of self-sabotage where I just didn't, you know, I didn't commit myself to really anything. I didn't complete anything. Um, and so I really had no options. And the recruiters are very good at helping you identify those facts about yourself. And so at that time, I think I'm in that generation of be all that you can be. Um, and my recruiter, uh, you know, he said, listen, you have an opportunity to escape this environment in some sense um, and to go do something else in life. And so um, I did I did just that. You've mentioned your mom. Was your mm -hmm. dad present in your household growing up? He was, and he still is uh, present. He just, he was a, you know, hardworking uh, Detroit. He works for Ford Motor Company, still works at Ford, um, and he worked second shift. So I was a latchkey kid. So um, essentially my mom would go to work early, uh, make sure that we got to school, but my dad would be off to work or going to work before we got home. Um, so I didn't see him very much until the weekends. And then when you moved to Georgia, did he move with you? He did. Yeah. So he was okay. he, he's always been a part of our life. Just again, they were two really hardworking parents. Um, yeah. And, and they came from part of the reason for wanting to go to Atlanta was not just the opportunity, but also wanting to escape some of the things I think themselves from from Detroit. Um, it wasn't the, the best conditions there either. Yeah. Yeah. Detroit has gone through some some tough times as a city. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So you enlist in the army. You've had these life-changing moments. Mm -hmm. How did the army change you? What was that experience like for for this young man who felt he had so few options? What what what, what was it like? Um, you know, I think that post makes it seem like a straight line trajectory from like you know from the bottom to the top essentially. But it was much more like the stock market. It was it was really rough. <laughs> It was really rough. I was in a, in a recession, if you will, coming in. And, um, and I did, I didn't fit in. Obviously, I didn't fit in. You know, I came in, I had 12 gold teeth. Um, so I looked different. Um, I also was, I did very well, um, on my ASVAP test. So I was training as a Russian linguist, uh, believe it or not. And so, um, I got into the, into that environment. I think I was one of two black people in my entire company. Um, a company being about 120 or so soldiers. 
And, wow. um, and, and people felt, you know, they looked at me quite differently. So I, I responded to that. I responded to, I don't fit, I don't fit here. I don't belong here. Um, so I stopped trying. Um, and that was sort of the, my initial integration into the military. There was a lot of period of time where I had people who didn't want me in, uh, drill sergeants who certainly wanted me out of the uniform because I wasn't consistent with what the military standards or perceptibly the standards should be. Um, and that just was because all, you're gold teeth or because you stopped trying, I mean, which, what, what were they most concerned about? I think, I think the gold teeth was, was sort of the nexus between, um, the attention I didn't want and the attention that I got. And so, uh, that was, that was the attention to what gang are you from? What hood are you from? Questions that, that don't apply to me. You know, I've never been a part of a gang, but, uh, but that was sort of pegged that way just based on my outward appearance. And so, uh, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I, I committed to giving them what they wanted. You know, I didn't I didn't perform well. I acted a certain way. Um, and so luckily I had people who were at each critical juncture of my military career to sort of, you know, steer me back on the right azimuth or direction. Well, what's the story behind the gold teeth to begin with? You know, <laughs> they're just cool. The, they, they were just cool. You know, so a lot of people that didn't, I think I was likened to some character from 007. I think his name was Jaws or something like that. You know, I, at, that, at, at that point, I had never watched 007, so I had no idea what they were talking about. Yeah. Uh, but it was just, it's a, it's a cultural thing. If at, During that time, if you were in the South, you saw your aunts or your grandmother, she had a couple of gold teeth. And, you know, it was, it was sort of a, um, I don't know, sort of an outward expression of, you know, outward expression of I have money at this age. Gotcha. Um, and so you, you try to portray something, in, in my case, something that I wasn't, um, but I certainly tried. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's really it's really one of the um, I think one of the failure points that we have in, in some of our communities where we we spend so much money to try to look like we have money when we don't. That's it's a really interesting point, a really interesting point that that uh, it might be a conversation for another day. But th this so now you're going through the military, you're going through this, as you said, this like a stock market sort of progression <laughs> up and down, booms and busts, all the rest. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment where you felt it settle and it, it was almost like a turning point, like I'm going to I'm going to make it through this? Yes and no. I will say there was, I never really had the epiphany that like now I am going to be successful. This is my, this is my tipping point. I never really had that. I always had the, um, you know, for lack of better words, I can't believe that I made it this far at every critical juncture. I mean, uh, when I became an officer, it was almost as if, you know, I don't come from a family of career military professionals and I certainly don't come from a lineage of officers. So when I became an officer, I was like, how did I make it here? You know, and so um, that was sort of my career all the way up to this point. How did I make it here? Well, you had mentioned earlier there was a point where you were sitting in the car next to your wounded friend who sadly succumbed to that gunshot wound where you mm -hmm. thought, I wish I could help this guy right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe medicine is in my future. So where did that then find its way into your into your life? Yes. Yeah, so I was a French. I went back to language school after failing Russian uh, and I studied French. So I became a French cryptological linguist um, and I was working in special forces. And so when I was in Wait, what does that mean? A French crypto? <laughs> a French what crypto? Yeah, whatever you said. <laughs> 
So you speak a foreign language and you work in intelligence and you okay. have the ability to um, to intercept signals and translate what's what's coming across those signals. Um, for okay, I will say that's what that sounded like and that's what I kind of thought. But right. so you're so you became you became fluent in French. Yes. Not an easy language. Not an easy language, but easier than Russian and, e and easier than the <laughs> Korean that's spoken in my home now. <laughs> okay, there we go. Touche. All right. So you, be you became this guy who could speak French and, and, and work in intelligence. And then, and then what? Ha I mean, my gosh, to me, that seems like an incredible landing spot, but clearly <laughs> that's not where you stayed. Yeah. So I was uh, a French linguist in Afghanistan which doesn't really marry up very well. So I started working with these special forces medics um, that I admire to this day, and some of them are on my LinkedIn. And seeing what they did on the battlefield was magic, uh, whether it was taking care of each other, whether it was saving wounded uh, Afghan children from blown off limbs, from IEDs. Um, seeing them work in that space prompted me to go back to my initial passion of medicine. And so because I wasn't doing a lot of linguistic work, um, I started working and helping out in the medical space with the um, uh, with the special forces medics, in addition to other things that we did um, in Afghanistan. I, I think it's important to note something you just said, that you saw these medics help Afghan children as well as Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. their own. I think, you know, that stuff gets overlooked. Why do you suppose that is? Uh, because I think that the that the narrative is is not shaped to highlight some of the good things. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. I believe Barack Obama uh, said that candidly. Um, you know, it's it's hard to highlight many of those things because it doesn't fit in a narrative. Oftentimes, well, it, it certainly does need to be highlighted. That it, um, and you called it magic. It, it's really a remarkable thing to hear someone who observed that and talk about it in its in its full sense. It's kind of beautiful. All right, mm -hmm. quick break because Bernard Tony's story goes on and on and it's <laughs> as if it weren't already unlikely, it's it gets even better. We'll be right back. So news is always mixed when it comes to the economy, but for the most part it's frustrating, it's a little discouraging and a little bit terrifying. Uh, you talk about what the winter's going to be like for people are they going to be able to afford their heating bills the way that they have in the past? These are some of the short-term issues we're thinking about. And then there are the long-term issues about your retirement funds, your IRAs, your 401ks. How are they doing in this volatile market? And have you mixed in gold to your portfolio? When it comes to gold and silver, I trust legacy precious metals. And I would encourage you to call them and ask all of your questions. I had so many and still, you know, love talking to them about the questions that I have about how precious metals can actually impact your long-term goals. Now think about 2008. Remember that? Those of us who are around to see that many people lost their retirements. Well, those who invested in gold saw some really significant gains while others were losing out. So gold and silver has a place. Maybe it's small. Maybe it's a little larger in your portfolio. Find out. Talk to Legacy Precious Metals. The number is 866-528-1903, 866-528-1903. And you can speak directly to an IRA expert. You can also download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. 
All right, Bernard. So you're helping with the medics in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. What happened next? Um, they said they wanted to be uh, PAs, physician assistants. And so I had no idea what that was, um, but I found out what that was. And so um, as I exited from the military to go to college, ROTC, um, that was always in the back of mind. And so um, at in my third trip to Afghanistan, um, I decided to apply to PA school within the military uh, from Afghanistan, and I was selected. Um, and then that's when I started this pivotal shift uh, from intelligence and all this other kind of stuff to to medicine. And, and where did you end up going to school? Uh, so we, w- the military trains their own PAs at the Inner Service Physician Assistant Program in Texas. So it's a military-driven uh, program, all four branches of service. Um, and I went to Texas, and I clinically trained in Hawaii. That's not bad. That's not oh. bad. That was that was that was, a, that was a nice that was a nice <laughs> training area. <laughs> so at, at this point along the line, um, mm-hmm. are you starting to feel like you belong and that you have a purpose, and that the the people who doubted you or maybe didn't like your gold teeth were that part was behind you, and and the future was opening up? How how were you looking at things? At that point, I don't know. I still felt I still felt like I didn't really belong. Um, you know, again, I guess in a lot of t- in a lot of ways in the military, it's not as I guess it's demographically si- similar to uh, to the general population. But I was always one of sixty, one of what. So I really didn't have these ties to people that I can culturally identify with. Um, in PA school, I did have one uh, very, and we're still close friends. But um, to your to your question, no, I, I still didn't really feel successful. Um, you know, e- even at that point, um, I just I felt like you know things are falling into place. But um, but I felt like in a lot of ways, I didn't have a whole lot of control over what was happening. I felt like you know these things are just happening to me, and I'm lucky or blessed. Interesting, interesting. So y- you go through this schooling, and mm-hmm. where does that land you ultimately? That lands me training in Hawaii and then in South Korea. Um, and that's where I practice family medicine, women's health um, for a little while. Um, and then back to Hawaii and then back to Korea. And I did that for about six years before going to the White House. And how did you wind up at the White House? Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Stuart Miller, who trained me in Hawaii, had previously worked at the White House. And, and he said, you know, it's an option. It's difficult to get there, but, uh, but if you can make it there, you know, I'll support you 100%. Um, the opportunity presented itself, much like everything else in my life. I, you know, I don't really plan these things out. Um, the opportunity presented itself and, uh, I flew to Washington DC from South Korea, uh, interviewed, uh, over the course of about three or four days. Very strange <laughs> battery of interviews. Um, what was and- it strange? Why was it? What was strange about it? Because you expect to go to a, at least a one interview or maybe a board interview for any normal job. But, you know, there's a significant security component. There's a social component. Uh, there was just things that you wouldn't expect. And it really is, is to see if you've made it that far, you've already sort of been identified as a really strong shortlisted candidate. Um, but uh, but really is how well do you fit on the team at that point? And so. So you go through those interviews and how much time does it take before you hear your fate? Um, so about a couple of weeks, they tell me you've been selected to come serve at the White House, uh, pack your bags. 
Um, and so within about a month, I was out of South Korea. I picked up all of my belongings between that country and the rest of my uh, furniture and belongings in Hawaii. And I came to Washington, D.C. And what did it mean to be on the White House staff? Like, what was your day to day? There is no day to day. No two days are alike, no, right? No two days are alike. So my role as a PA was essentially to um, to be the primary provider, um, oftentimes for the vice president um, and for the first family and second family. So I would travel quite a bit with in first administration I worked with, with Mike Pence, um, and most recently with Kamala Harris. Um, and then I would also uh, be the first provider or the only provider oftentimes for the first lady. So uh, again, with Melania Trump and, and most recently with Dr. Joe Biden. And, and then I will work as a team, as a collective uh, uh, for, for taking care of the medical protection for the president. Um, and so I would do a lot of the planning. I would, uh, you know, go across overseas or go over uh, to another state or city or wherever the, the president's going to go, do the planning. And then once, uh, once he arrives and I embed myself into our team and, and we conduct our, our duties to protect the president. This is kind of amazing. You do you do you realize that now that you, you you know at 14 you had a gun at your head, at 17 your friend in your car is killed in front of you. You don't have a good GPA. You go into the army and then now cut to and I realize like you said it's not a straight line. Nothing I think that's something we all think happens mm -hmm. like, "Oh wow, how did you get that job?" Well, you stack day upon day upon day upon day of hard work and just showing up. Right. Yes. I, I mean, that, that that's kind of how it happens. That is how it happens. I mean, again, it was very serpiginous in the way that, you know, it was very tangential. I didn't go in a straight line. Oftentimes I wish I did, you know, I kind of envy people who did sort of have that uh, sort of straight line trajectory to whatever they do in life. Um, but I think, you know, for me, it gave me a range of experiences uh, for me to be able to appreciate all cultures, all people, all languages. Um, and, to, and to remain humble because I know where I started in life. You're also a Tillman scholar, correct? That's correct. I want to hear about this. Pat Tillman, for those who don't know, was a player in the NFL for the Arizona Cardinals, a very good player who, after 9-11, felt really compelled to stand up for the United States and became a Green Beret and died. Friendly fire, but died in action he, there's a, a scholarship in his name. How did that come about that you connected with that organization and became a Tillman scholar? Yeah. So after I finished my doctorate degree, um, I decided on the heels of the pandemic to finish uh, or to uh, obtain a master's in public health at George Washington University. Um, so I was introduced that opportunity to apply for the scholarship. The connection between Pat Tillman and I is, is pretty profound though. Uh, he died in 2004 um, in, uh, in a region of Afghanistan at the time it was called Lawara Forward Operating Base. Um, and he died, um, earlier that year. In August of that same year, that's exactly where I deployed. I deployed to the exact location, uh, where he died. Um, and so that was pretty profound for me because that was my introduction to, uh, combat operations. That was my introduction to this legend, Pat Tillman, you know, that he died in this area uh, protecting our country. Um, and then I had the opportunity to serve just months later on the heels of his death in the same location. Um, so I applied for that scholarship. And uh, and I think 
it's a very elite group of pe- group of people that oftentimes, you know, I feel like I have imposter syndrome. I don't feel like I belong in that oh. cohort of people. Um, but, you know, but but great, great people who are going to make uh, who are making significant impacts in all sorts of industries, whether it's law, health, public health, what have you. Um, so it's just an honor to be even categorized uh, with those types of people. That imposter syndrome is something I've picked up on you throughout this interview. And maybe I, I relate to it because I, I always felt that way too, Bernard. I, mm-hmm. I just felt like, you know, sooner or later, someone's going to figure out I'm not supposed to be here. And <laughs> I, I know, I'll get the boot or whatever. <laughs> you know, see, you're laughing because you get it, right? Right, right, right. You're relating to this. And I relate right. to that as well. Like, right. how, how did I wind up in this group? You know, right. um, it, it's, it's a truly remarkable story. What is your message to kids who may have been in your same shoes at the age of 14, 16, 17, about the, the sense that they, they, they're not really sure, they don't really understand how capable they are? Right. Um, I think that we all have this untapped potential. Um, and really my message to the people who may be in those environments is that you can't give up hope. You have to keep trying to seek opportunities to remove yourself from whatever's keeping you in that place. Um, but I have an even stronger message for leaders. The, my message for leaders is um, to be that one. I can tell you that every point of my career, every military base, every assignment that I've ever had, I probably have more naysayers uh, than people who supported me. But I always had that one. And so if you can find a way to be that one, and you don't necessarily have to be in a position of leadership. Um, it can be personal leadership. It can be, you know, the, the friend that's on the block with you that says, I'm not going to I'm not going to smoke weed with you tonight because that's not going to lead into a good place. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of what I've experienced were, you know, if you look at some of the people who impacted me, um, they were not extremely powerful people in many instances, but they invested in me. Um, and, and my message is that, you know, you don't have to wait until you're in that position to invest in others. You can start now wherever you are. Be that one. That is a, just, those are three really powerful words. I, I am so impressed with you. You, you, you have a self-awareness um, that is unique and that is rare. You, you seem to understand yourself and you're humble. You're married now with a five and a two-year-old, you said? I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's, there's you're going to need some of that disciplinary training uh, in your life for the next many years. Uh, I, I got to ask you how your parents um, are responding to your your trajectory and to your success. They can't believe it um, because they of out of anyone else, they know where I was mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, but they've always supported me. My mother did not want me to join the military, but now she's glad that I did. Um, and, and my father wanted me to join the military, but he didn't want me to do the jobs that I had. And now he's glad that I did. Um, and so, um, I'm a first generation college graduate. Uh, I've done a lot of things as a first, um, coming from my lineage. Um, and I think that it, had it not been for them, for those sacrifices that they made, um, even though they were not really there oftentimes, I was able to see that work ethic um, pour into me. And that's the work ethic that I have today. Uh, and so um, they're just they're ecstatic and they, they actually have no idea where I can end up next at this point. Well, right. I mean, my goodness. 
Right. I mean, that's the, that's a really cool part of all of this. You're young. You're still young and vibrant and you've got, uh, all kinds of stuff ahead. I'm going to keep in touch with you because I want to know what's next. I, you know, if you could go any higher and farther in your shoes, I want to know about it. Um, you're right. an impressive person and I'm so, so happy to meet you and share your story because I do feel like we are telling too many people that they are victims, that they can't when in fact they can. And we can't just lower the standards so that people feel good about not leaping higher. We, we need to tell people what they're capable of. You're, you're right. a phenomenal example of that. And your kids are very lucky. Thank you so much, Michelle. Bernard Tony, it, it's just a, a great, great story. You can follow him on LinkedIn. Um, where else can people follow you if they want to know more about you? Unfortunately, because of my long history with top secret security clearances oh, and things like right. that, I actually don't have a large social media presence. So LinkedIn <laughs> is probably the best place to find me. It's so interesting. When I got an email from you, it had this really interesting little red thing next to it. Like, <laughs> like, uh, this, I had never seen it before. It was sort of this alert, alert. And, uh, that was cool. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> it's so nice to be in touch with you. And again, thank you for sharing your story. I, I just, I'm impressed and it brings me hope. And I hope it brings a lot of other people some much needed inspiration. Bernard, thank you so much. Thanks everyone for joining us on Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Be brave like Bernard was and do good. Uh, be that one, as he said, for other people. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Well, Sideline Sanity, we are very proud to be sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals, and we're joined by Charles Thorngren, the CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. Charles, we are hearing now that this is not transitional inflation. This is not a bump in the road. This inflation is going to be here a while. What, what, does, that, what does that tell you? You know, that's the scary thing. Um, I think, you know, economies and, and, and such like that, they can deal with small jars. We have a, a unique situation. We had a Fed that waited much too long to react to the situation, calling inflation transitory for a year when everyone knew it wasn't. But more importantly than that, coming out now saying this is going to be here. This is long term. This is not short term. We're going to have elevated rates for the long term. And why that gets really scary is that means the cost of doing business is going to be elevated for years, which means the cost of goods are going to be elevated for years, which means if companies can't make enough money, they will go out of business. This is why we, we hear some of your bigger companies are already talking about layoffs. So it's a unique situation. The Fed found themselves in a very bad place. And they reacted way too slow. And this is why we're at where we're at. So if I'm an investor, then what's, why do I want gold and silver in my portfolio? What, what will that do for me? You know, that, that's a great question. And that's a question we get a lot. And, and really what gold and silver do, um, they act as the hedge against the dollar weakness. They act as a hedge against the other markets. And we know that the Dow and, and all of your markets, all your indices are, are, are pulling back, right? That's not the issue. It's not what's already happened. It's what's yet to come. And that's where we, we need to prepare. So depending on who you listen to 
and, and the research that you do, you know, there are case studies that are saying expect to see another 25, 20 to 25% pullback in your equities markets based on interest rates and loans and, and the bond markets they're suffering as well. No one's going out to buy bonds knowing that they're going to be um, an increased return on them in three months. It makes no sense. So that leaves you in a position of what to do with your money and how to protect yourself. This is where gold and silver come in. This is why we say this is a long-term play. You buy it, you forget about it, let it do its, its job. And its job is to go up over time as the dollar gets weaker, as the purchasing power gets less, gold and silver increase. It protects that purchasing power. And that's the great thing about it. And there's your bottom line and why you need to call Legacy Precious Metals or go download their investor's guide at LegacyPreciousMetals.com. Charles, it's always good to talk to you because these are nerve-wracking times for people. You know, it, it's just the fact of the matter is, as we were told by the, the Fed chair, there's going to be some pain. So if people know that they've got something solid sitting in their investment portfolio, I think they're going to feel a little bit better, right? Absolutely. And... and we, you know, when we look at the actions that have happened just recently, I mean, the Fed has taken a very unique stance and they've done something very um, extraordinary. Three quarters of a basis points raises months in a row. That's one of the largest raises you've ever seen in the Fed through the history of the Fed. And it's not just once. One time is shocking. Here we are on the third month now. And we'll probably do another half a half a basis point next month or, or later this month, possibly even three quarters of a point. So when you look at that and you say that number is going to grow to where the Fed interest rates will be about 5%, unheard of. That means the interest rate to you and I, if that's what banks pay to borrow money, we're going to see, you know, credit cards will probably be over 28, 30% again. You're going to see home loans coming in 9, 10, possibly even 11 percent. And it's it's a scary time. And this is why we say, OK, know this coming. Don't be afraid. You, you now are aware. So now you can protect yourself. And that's what we help people do. Don't be afraid. Prepare. Just prepare yourself. And like I say every day, I trust Legacy Precious Metals when it comes to investing in gold and silver. So go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Charles and his group can answer any and all of your questions. Charles, thank you so much. My pleasure as always. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.